All right, Psalm 16, verse 6. Here's the psalmist. He makes this statement here. Psalm 16, verse 6. He says, The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. Now, when he said that, when he says, The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places, he's talking about borders. He got land borders that were given to him, that he inherited. Hey, this is what our family got. We got the, ooh, we got the line just on the other side of the creek. That means we have the creek and part of our property. And we got part of the forest. We're not in all the desert. He had a good spot that he inherited for property. He had a goodly heritage is what he's saying. I don't know all that, in, all that um, encompassed that, what David was saying. But the language he's using, he's using language of inheriting land. The lines are falling onto me in good, goodly places. Wow, I got a good spot. I have a uh, lines are falling onto me in pleasant places. He says, "I have a goodly heritage. I got a good thing going for me that I passed down that was been passed down to me by way of the most simple assumption and interpretation. There is landmarks and, and receiving and inheriting land." And I think of when I think of the whole Bible translation and as it pertains to English translations issued tonight, I think of a similar application that we've we got a good thing going for us as English speaking people. We have a goodly heritage of translations. I, that's what I hope you already are starting to see. And if you don't, I think you'll see more of it tonight. It wasn't just that a Bible just plopped out of the sky or. Then 1611 was the first English translation ever. It wasn't just like that. Um, things, there was a heritage that was developing, and we have a goodly heritage as it relates to Bible, a Bible translation. Um, you know, I would say, because I'm trying to see things from God's perspective, I would say that if God saw fit that, um, I'm just going to throw this out there. If God saw fit that the Chinese were dominating the world by way of language for the last five, six hundred years, God would see fit that there would be a dominant translation that was voicing to the rest of the world there. Well, God saw fit that the English language became the language of commerce for the last whatever it is, let's say 400 years, and it happens to be that we have a very re reliable translation that corresponds with that. That's part of God. Um, giving a good heritage to those who are in that language and preserving his word in another language other than the originals. So when I think about this whole issue, the English scriptures and the King James translation, I think of, boy, we have a goodly heritage. Let me just give a little, as we go along, I want to kind of give a little point of advice as we go along talking about Bible translation. When you start, when you all study Bible translation stuff beyond what you're learning here, Try to block out the personalities. There's a lot of really coarse personalities that come on both sides of this thing, and sometimes they ruin the whole conversation. And um, so I'll just leave it at that statement. I don't want to name people right now. But um, anyways, let's just look, try to be objective. So let's just do a review here. We, we have a little booklet if you want to take notes in it. It's right on that back table. If anybody wants one, anybody want a book, booklet or just, all right. Um, what we're doing is we're backing up saying, how, you know, what, where did the English scriptures come to us? And 
Well, let me try to make this quick here. Um, when White, John Wycliffe in 1384 did the first full English translation. There were some English translations before that, but never a full one. The problem with that one in 1384 was that it was a translation of a translation. And even the trans, in other words, there was a Latin translation, which was already had some Catholic flavor to it. And he translated from that to another translation in English. And it was helpful, and it was, it was ground-shaking for his day and age to even do that, but it wasn't the best translation. He died, and he was, they hated him so bad that they, what was it, 40-something years later, they unearthed his bones, and they burned him and threw him in the river. And uh, so anyways, this was the first one. And, um, and then we have, in fact, I'll just go through a couple of, here's, here's John Wycliffe there. He had chapter, but not verse divisions when that first English translation was done. Then we have a, years later, there was a follower of his, pardon me, that talks about his, we talked about his ashes being, uh, his bones being taken out and him burned again late years later and his ashes thrown in the river. They hated him so bad. <clears throat> but later on, he had a man named, that followed him named John Huss, who also was, had this radical idea that people should have, be able to read a copy of the scriptures themselves. And the, the established church at the time was against that. They hated him. They burned him at the stake. This is a great story. There's a lot to his story that I wish I could tell you. Uh, but when he was burned, they used his kindling John Wycliffe's manuscripts. That's how much they hated him. That's how much they hated what he did in translating the scripture. And then William Tyndale, he is really, humanly speaking, kind of the you know foundation of a lot of what we have in the King James Version, at least the New Testament, and some Old Testament books, but all the New Testament. He was the very first to, to, to translate the English scriptures from the original languages and not translating from a translation. So he really consulted the Hebrew and the Greek, started doing that, and he was chased around Europe and England for it, and has ended up being strangled. And his last words are, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And that happened pretty soon after that. The King of England and the Queen later on became more favorable. Yeah, we do need a translation for our people and English-speaking people. And so a man who was acquaintance with Tyndale took the rest of his work and finished the translation. They called it the Miles Coverdale Bible in 1535. And then John Rogers, who was also an acquaintance of William Tyndale, did one a few years later called the Matthews Bible. He changed his name. It's a pseudonym because he didn't want, he was still kind of edgy if you're associated with Tyndale. Then there was another translation, the Great Bible, Henry VIII officially authorized it. It was the first officially authorized version. And this is a wonderful, glorious picture of him, I guess, here. In the preface of it, probably wasn't in color back then, but it, that was also called the Chained Bible because uh, they chained it to a pulpit. <clears throat> And then the Geneva Bible. This is a very influential Bible. People who fled Europe, uh, the uh, English reformers. Now, when I say reformers, I mean they're, they're trying to reform the Church of England, and they want to they assert the authority of Scripture and the, the truth of the gospel. And during this time, there's a Catholic queen that comes to power in England, and she's going to stamp out these reformers and so some of these reformers flee and they have a colony in Geneva, Switzerland and during that time they're still tenacious to say let's get a better translation of scripture and so get it done and so they had a team of them that translated the scriptures in Geneva. Uh, John Calvin was uh, I think may have been part of some of that 
although he may have been dead by that time at those 1560. But anyways, that's where John Calvin was, not that we're Calvinists or anything, but just to give you some context. But this became a pretty influential translation. Uh, the pilgrims that came over here used it. John Knox used it. Shakespeare, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Now, this is the first English Bible to use both chapter and verse divisions. And then uh, the Bishop's Bible, Queen Elizabeth uh, authorized, and then the King James Version. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to just take a little bit more time to kind of pull back the curtain of how we got, that, how we got this, this current translation that pretty much is, it is a standard for our church, that the pulpit standard, uh, people sometimes read other versions and they consult them and you know what, if you want to do that, that's fine. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to say, what's the rendering in English for us? And this is what we believe it is uh, from this translation. And so we're going to look at some of the history behind this. Um, before we do, I want to just see, back up a little bit and, and consider a few thoughts about the Bible. Worldatlas.com, I was noticing on there website, just doing some research about the Bible. The Bible is the world's best-selling book of all time. Now, it's not saying one particular translation. Just the Bible itself is the world's best-selling book of all time up to this point. It is apparently, I found, the most translated book in history. <clears throat> and then notice this on history.com. And even in, six, in, nine, in pardon me, 2011, and I think it was even 2012 on the 400th anniversary of the King James Version, even secular publications were taking notice of this book in your lap because they knew it as far as literature, it's influential, whether they believed it or not. And I think it was Time Magazine, and I, I thought I saved that uh, Time Magazine that had a piece on it, but I did find this on history.com. They did a whole piece on the um, King James Version, and here's what they said. Even now, referring to the King James Version, more than four centuries after its publication, King James Bible remains the most famous Bible in translation history, the most famous Bible translation in history, and one of the most printed books ever. Now, when I think about that, I think of Psalm 68. Look at Psalm 68:11. We looked at it last week. That reminds me of this verse, where it says in Psalm 68:11, "The Lord gave the word." Great was the company of those that published it. Great was the company of those that published it. You know, in other words, the Bible is the world's best-selling book of all time. The Bible is the most translated book in history. The King James Version in particular was, is itself one of the most printed books ever. Great was the company of those that published it. I'm just trying to help you back up and look at some context of the, the Bible translation you have so you can appreciate it. All right, so um, now let's go to what I want to look at kind of in three sections. What I want to look at is the scenario of the King James Version, the scenario, the kind of the context. When did this come about? Okay, kind of the, the atmosphere and the, the situation by which it came about. We'll look at the scenario. We're going to look at the translators of the King James Version, just give you a feel for what they were like. I want to look at the text and approach that they had. And then fourthly, just some observe the printing and revisions that took place of the, of the translation, okay? So we're going to look at those four thoughts. I'll try to make it as plain and understandable as possible. Okay, uh, the scenario of the King James Version, there was, a, there was a conference that happened, and of course this is all in England, in 1604. There was men, there was churchmen. When we say churchmen, we're talking the Church of England, 
And some Puritans would be like the conservatives in the Church of England that wanted to really purge it of its, some of the things that were wrong of it. They weren't Baptists. Um, but if you had a choice to be in the Church of England, at least be a Puritan. You know? But they appealed to the king at this conference, King James. And by the way, even before this conference, this wasn't new to King James. He was, if I remember right, he was first king of Scotland, then king of England, and, and that was uh, an amazing thing. And even in Scotland, he had people appealing to him, saying, we need a new translation. So he was already on his mind. Then they have this conference, and I think the, I, I should have wrote it down, one of the guys, I think it was John, oh, John Reynolds, I think it was, was the guy heading up this conference, and they basically made an appeal to the king, king, we would like a, tra a new translation of scripture. Now, let me pause a second. This conference was not actually only about that. It was actually about a bunch of other church issues that they wanted to fix. And I read that they had made no progress on all their whatever little political church issues that they wanted to fix. They said they made no progress on it. But one thing they made progress on was when they made the appeal on their agenda, one of the agenda items was a new translation. That was when they made some progress. And the king authorized it. And uh, so, again, Church of England leaders and Puritans were part of that. Uh, the king initially appointed 54 scholars. I think it was later on that year, because I believe this conference was in January. They, I believe it was by July the scholars were appointed. Uh, it ended up being only about 47 scholars, which is a lot, that did the work, because some of the men died as it began. Some died afterwards. And I'm not saying they're all on their last leg either. I don't, you know, it's just... They didn't have Obamacare, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's just, <laughs> but, the, and, okay, and then here's the thing. At that time, the, I want you to understand their mentality. They're in, they're, when they did the translation, and I think this might be in the preface, not the, the longer preface. I don't have the longer preface in mind. But they basically said this. We are not trying to make a new, brand new, completely new translation. But we are trying to make a good one better. What they're saying is we're using basically the translation that was before us, which was a, a refined Tyndale translation already, and it's good and we're making it better and it ends up being really the best. That was their attitude. Let me give you a little sketch of that. Uh, the translators themselves. So that was the scenario of it. <clears throat> the translators, let's talk about that. They're split up in six groups there at these different colleges and places of learning, Westminster, Cambridge, and Oxford. There was two groups at each of those, and each group had so many men in it, and they were responsible for, I, I didn't look at the particulars, but say Genesis to Deuteronomy was one group, and then another set of books for another group, and then another set of books for another group, and they, they were kind of like a team that were working on these portions of Scripture, including the Apocrypha, and I'll try to... I'll explain that in a little bit, too. The Apocrypha, we, would, we don't consider it authoritative, and neither did they, but it's intertestamental books that have more of a historical value. But that's what they did. There was uh, six groups at Westminster, Cambridge, and Oxford. Um, each group edited each other's works, or I should, it probably would be better for me to say reviewed, and then uh, they would corporately edit, um, and then it would go to the next larger group. Let me pause right here, and I want to read a few things t for you. I've tried to do as much research I can in a short amount of time. <clears throat> Listen to how 
You know, if you work on a team on something, probably none of us in here have really ever, I mean, Australia's helped do some translating for us, but it's a big ordeal to translate something. And um, so they, they really had a great, it was done in an excellent way, I should say. Let me read to you an example. This was a man at the time who was witnessed and knew how they did it. His name is John Selden, and he writes this of how the community of revisers behaved. Listen to what he says. The translators of the, in, the King James, in King James' time took an excellent way. That part of the Bible was given to him who was most excellent in such a tongue. And then they met together, and one read the translation, the rest in the group, holding in their hands some Bible, either of the learned tongues or French or Spanish, Italian, etc., they listened. And if any found, if they found any fault, they spoke. If not, he read on. Just a little sample of how they did that. It's like the guy's like, I, I did my section here. All right, let's hear it. He'd start reading it. They would listen. They had their comparative other languages even, because these guys could, they knew multiple languages. And they'd say, they'd, you know, hold on a minute, let's, what about this word? You know, and they would question each other and just kind of hammer this thing out in their small group. And then that small group would take their, what they've done and they'd show it to the other group and they would revise it in another way. And it's kind of like it was checked and cross-checked. So they did that and they did do the Apocrypha. Let me make mention of that. The Apocrypha was actually, um, they said that it was, it was done for the edifying of people, but not to confirm and strengthen the doctrine of the church. It's to be read not for doctrine, but for knowledge of history. Now, for us as Baptists, we're like, we don't have to have that even in there. If we want to read it, we'll find it somewhere. So uh, some people, they like, oh, you do know, did you know the King James Bible had the Apocrypha in it? Yeah, I bet you didn't know that, huh? Yeah, the newer versions don't. Well, they didn't even, they didn't intend to teach doctrine by even having that in there. And so it doesn't mean that, you know, did you know, did you know that in your Bible right now there's some words that God never said in it? Like the table of contents and the maps and stuff. I mean, the, the, I mean there's things that are still just added. It doesn't mean that you're suggesting it's authoritative. Some people take it as authoritative, the Apocrypha, but we, we don't. And even the Church of England didn't at the time, at least these guys didn't. So when I think about what's going on here, I think of Philippians 1.10. Paul said that you might approve the things that are excellent. Paul basically said, whatever you do, look and, and strive for the best thing. Approve the things that are excellent. And here are, I'm going to show you how I want you to see is this thing is excellent. The way they did it, the men who did it, the method, the mentality they had is excellent. Now, I'm not saying all of them are perfect. I'm not saying King James is perfect. He, had, he was kind of weird when I started looking at some things about him. I'm like, I don't know about this guy. Um, but overall, this is an excellent thing that was done. All right, so several translators died before it finished. I already said that. These guys that I'm going to mention to you right now, I'm not suggesting these guys died before it was finished, but I want to give you a sample of some of the men who, of the 47 that went through it, uh, who they were. Here's one guy, Lance, Dr. Lancelot Andrews. 
dean of Westminster, skilled linguist. They, this is what people said about him. Uh, it's said to have been able to serve as the interpreter general at Babel. Okay, now, that's kind of flattering, because in reality, nobody understood anything at Babel. But they're saying, if, they, if we transported him back in time, he would have been like, oh, I know what they're saying over there, and I know what they're saying over there, and I know what they're saying over there, because this guy had knew so many languages at the confusion of tongues there at Babel. Um, that's nice to know. You know, there's a guy that knows more than even two languages that's helping out on a translation. Here's another guy, Dr. Miles Smith. He was well acquainted with uh, rabbinical learning. That means he's a, you know, he's, he knows the habits and the ethics of rabbis and the synagogue-type context. And he knew Hebrew, Chaldee, Syriac, Arabic, and other languages. They called him the walking library. There's another guy here, John Boyce. This is interesting. This guy, at six years of age, could read and write Hebrew elegantly. One of the most laborious of all the revisers. Now, it's one thing to be able to be... I mean, that's, that's good. Reading and writing. If you can read and write your own language at six, English. I mean, Grant's, he's six. He's going to be seven here in a couple months. He can read a little bit. He can write a little bit. Not elegantly. No Hebrew at all. No Hebrew. Uh, there's a guy, we were, the, we ha I told you we had some bike parts donated to the church. And um, I've been trying to sell them on uh, OfferUp. We're almost done. We, well, we still have some, but there's this one guy. He's a nice guy. Um, I tried witnessing to him, but he has no connection with church. He basically doesn't seem like he had, wants to have anything to do with it. He's Korean. And you can, I mean, he's got the broken English, and, and uh, he wanted to see some of the, you know, bike parts, the tires, and the tubes, but he kept saying, it was a little bit hard understanding him some because he said, tubu. I need tubu. Tubu? What's tubu? You know, and uh, tubu. And, no, tubu, right here, tubu. And he showed me these tubes. I said, oh, yeah, tubes. He goes, no, tubu. You want to say some tubes? Tubu. No, it's not tubu. But anyway, so even one time, he came like three times. He came three times. Uh, he seemed like he was coming about once a week. And one of the times, finally, he gave, instead of communicating through the uh, the OfferUp app, we just exchanged phone numbers and were texting each other for a little bit. And he, he even texts me on one of the texts. He says, can I come? Again, I said, sure. He goes, I need Tubu. It's like, I even spelled it, Tubu. It's like, it's not Tubu, but I'll let you have some. We'll sell it to you. And I started thinking, man, this guy's got terrible English. And then I thought, you know, his English is 100 times better than my Korean. You know, so he's doing a lot better than me. So I don't need to criticize him. But how about a guy that can do this? That's amazing. This guy, got by age six, he's reading, writing uh, Hebrew elegantly. All right, and then another guy, just a sample here, Tom, Dr. Thomas Holland, again, one of the translators. He was considered a prodigy in all the branches of literature that he dealt with. Now, the reason I do that is uh, I'm just letting you see there's, these guys were not just, you know, um, green college graduates or you know, young seminary graduates, or, or even t like a modern scholar. You know, there's, 
it's, I would, I, from what I can feel and sense, it's hard to find scholars nowadays that have multiple expertise or expertise in multiple languages, let alone with a Christian mind. Back then, I mean, you have the Reformation help produce this because it was like surge of learning, surge of interest. The Reformation's in the 1500s. They're trying to reform the Catholic Church. A lot of gospel preaching came back during that time. And the ref uh, a surge of learning, a surge of wanting to learn the original languages again was a good thing. And it, and it elevated the, the standard of education in a lot of these divinity schools and even um, these colleges where it's like, hey, everybody needs to learn Latin and Greek and Hebrew besides the English. And then some went on beyond that. And so some of these guys, they're, uh, they're just, I don't know how else to say it, very competent on dealing with a language and, and taking a Hebrew and Greek and saying, we're going to transport this to the English world and doing it safely and accurately. So there's a little sketch there of these guys. Now here's their approach, the text and the approach of the King James translators again. So how would they approach doing a translation? Well, um, <clears throat> they consulted the Masoretic text. I say that word Masoretic. It basically just means the Hebrew Old Testament that was meticulously copied. They call it the Masoretic text because there's a group called Masoretes that were very known for meticulously copying it and keeping it preserved. They used that text. Uh, they translated from that. They consulted also the Textus Receptus. Now what, some of us are like, these, I don't get these words, Pastor. You need to at least know these two statements right here. The Masoretic Text and the Textus Receptus. This Textus Receptus, that's Latin for received text. It's kind of like saying this is the traditional New Testament Greek text that we believe was represents really the, the, the epistles that were really written versus other Greek texts where like, we're not sure about those renderings. We're not sure about this one. This is the one that everybody's really receiving. This seems what the church, when I say the church, the Protestant and the separatists, non-Catholics were accepting and using. The Textus Receptus, they used that Greek text. That Greek text, listen, look at this, represents 95% of all Greek manuscripts that you can find. The 5,800 plus is total. 95% of that is represented in what's called the Texas Receptus. That, it's most consistent renderings, little variants versus the recent critical text. I'm trying to make this as in simple language as possible. They, um, <clears throat> it is the most consistent uh, new Greek New Testament with very little variants that is very little uh, differences, and even the differences that are there are minor with the other family of manuscripts in contrast to the critical text. And again, I've said this before, but this is where we have the biggest beef with the translations, okay? It's not because, well, it's just different. No, it's not just saying, well, it's just different, or it's not traditional. The problem with a lot of the modern translations is they're, is they're drawing from a different creek. They're going to a different source. They're going to recent manuscripts that were found in the 1800s that were not, nobody was really using them. And there's, 50, there's no more than 50 of them, and they contradict more often between themselves than the other 
95% that our Texas Receptus comes from, it's most consistent. And it's like we found a more reliable text. And so, but, but that's what they think because it was older, it dates older, but it has a lot of contradictions between it. And there's more questionable, even some of the um, omissions in it are very questionable. Like, why is that admitted? Why is Christ admitted? Why is the Trinity admitted, uh, omitted, I should say, in those passages? And so that's why we have a beef with some of these newer translations, because almost all of them draw from that text. Um, the New King James will take both of them and blend them together, and they try to translate from that. Um, but anyways, here's that. And then, so the text, what else did they do? So again, what am I doing? I'm trying to paint you a picture of these 47 translators. Again, some of them, some of them by the end it was 47 because some of them died. What are they doing? They're in these different groups. They, they're well qualified. They're competent. They're editing, cross-checking each other. They're using Hebrew and Greek, but they're also consulting that English versions that they had, like Tyndale's and Coverdale and the Bishop's Bible. They're consulting and comparing with Martin Luther's translation, which is a very good German translation that happened in early 1500s, and French versions and Latin and Italian and Syriac these other translations. So they're consulting and just kind of comparing and trying to get a full picture of what other people are saying in other languages. And uh, they're coming up with what they, what they have. So they spent three years translating. This is what I found. Another three years revising, pardon me, reviewing, which probably amounted to some editing, revising. And then nine months preparing for print. I mean, it's like when we're done with something, it's like, all right, send it to the computer and hit print. You know, we're just fast. But it's a big deal on what, you know, how to print something back then. You better make sure it's exactly like you want because we're setting our types and our little, I don't know how it worked, but I'm sure it was a big ordeal. Um, and then the printing, even after it was printed, there was some, some revisions still. Now, they were very minor. Um, there were, first of all, after I read, after about 40 years, it became more widely used because, again, the Geneva Bible, which, in my opinion, again, I haven't read the whole thing, it didn't seem like it was that big of a contrast, the Geneva Bible. Um, but it did eventually, the King James Version eventually surpassed that, became more widely used. Revisions were done to correct misprints, and a few minor mistranslations. I mean, very few. They, they make it, some people will be like, um, they had one, you know, they put out editions of them. And I don't know how often they did it, but apparently one of the editions, it was like they called it the adultery Bible. Because they forgot to put not, and thou shalt not commit adultery. Aha, uh -huh, see, they had the adultery Bible. You think you had your Bible so great. Well, they misprinted it. It's not a, I mean, come on. It happens, you know. And there, there was some, it's a few little printing mistakes. There was a few where there, it just, it did get revised, but it's minor. It really is minor. And then they did revision. Here's the, probably the biggest thing was they modified the spelling and the font. Let me just pause a second. People are going to say, I've had people say this to me, did you know your King James Bible has been changed thousands of times and thousands of, no, in thousands of places. Did you know that? 
And they say that because they, they, they want to, and sometimes people want to intimidate you and make you feel bad or whatever. I mean, that's how sometimes people have said it to me because they want to fuss about it. And when people say stuff like that, yes, it was changed probably in thousands of places. And some of it were correcting a few misprints and a few minor mistranslations, which are corrected very early on. And then later on, it's the spelling and the font. But the essential translation was not changed. There was a major one done, I think it was 18-something, or 17-something, Scribner, they call it, Scribner's Revision. But it was, it was very... Rusty, do you still have the one? Okay, he's got like an original... We have an original page. I think it dates. They don't know exactly when that page was printed right there. But King James Version is like between 1611 and 30-something, I think the plaque says. What I'm saying is it wasn't that big of a change. Well, let's look at it, really. Um, so uh, you start reading. Oh, I know what that says. But look at that. That's kind of tough right there. Look at the font. I mean, I'm like ready to highlight it on my computer and go up to font, click font, and change the font right there on it. You know what I mean? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It, it reads the same. This right here is a weird way of the. It's like a little tiny E over a Y. I can't remember the style they call it, Jacobian, Jacobian English or something. Well, this is what it was like. And then sometime, I couldn't figure out exactly when, but sometime after 1617, it's a little better. The font, the spelling's not. So the font changed to whatever that is, font. Gothic, Gothic font. To, the font's changed a little better, but now the spelling's still about the same for God. It reads the same, though. For love... Uh, the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever, that's spelled different, isn't it? Believeth, believeth, that's not believeth, it's a V still. The V sound. It's essentially the same. And then, this is what we most of us read, not just the sound of it, but the sight of it, the font, and the spelling of it. Today. So, that's how it's changed. It's really not changed that much, but I tell you what, you know, <clears throat> some of the modern versions, I, I think the New King James Bible has John 3.16 very accurately. In fact, I saw the guy who was the main editor of it one time in a debate defend before the NIV guys using only begotten son in that verse because he says it's more accurate. Now, he had problems with other parts of the New King James Version, but he was defending it. And... Um, but a lot of the other translations, they, maybe not in this verse, but in some other verses, they contrast. It's like it's just saying a little bit, it's a little different. And sometimes it's different. Listen to me. Sometimes a new translation is different because I'm trying to be as objective as possible. Sometimes a new translation is different because they used a different translation method. They were trying to kind of paraphrase instead of be formal have a formal equivalence like this one has, a formal equivalence. Sometimes they're different because they had a different translation method, like saying, 
You know, just, just paraphrasing it a little bit. Other times it's different because, listen to this, other times it's different because they, they may have had this, they may have the right translation philosophy, let's be formal, let's be literal, but they're drawing from a different text that reads a little different than the traditional text. And so while they might have the attitude of let's be literal, they're taking something, they're, being, they're drawing something literally from something that's not a reliable Greek text in the first place and putting it out there. For instance, there's a passage in 1 Peter. In fact, I think I got it in our notes here. Let me look really quick here. There's a passage in 1 Peter 2, verse 2. You can look at if you have this thing. There's a passage in 1 Peter 2, 2. In the received text, it says, Peter says that we should desire the sincere milk of the word, quote, that ye may grow thereby. That's what your translation says, because that's what the Greek says. But the critical text reads, you desire the sincere milk of the word. If they're going to be honest with their critical text, it says that ye may grow unto salvation. Suggesting salvation is a work. Now, I'm not saying it's riddled with that. I'm saying it's sprinkled in some places with that. And so... You take the point of saying that is there's passages where it's like it reads different. This new version reads different because, well, they had a different translation philosophy. This read, it might read different also because they're drawing from a different Greek text instead of the traditional one that we believe is faithful and true. And Baptists and Separatists and Protestants had their fingerprint on and God is blessed versus this newer Greek text. And then other times, now I'm trying to be honest. I'm always trying to be honest. A translation reads differently because they're probably using synonymous words. That's where it's like, okay, it's just a synonymous word. In other words, uh, all right, so this is, if I were to say this, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This has a theological strength to it. Instead, if you say one and only, it's, eh, there's more theological strength to saying that. That whoever believes in him, that's accurate. If I say whoever believes, that's accurate. Believeth is believe, believeth is same as believes, synonymous. Whoever is same as whosoever should not perish but have everlasting life. So sometimes the translation might read different because, well, they, they're just they're having synonymous words, but other places it may read different because, oh, they drew from a different text or they're really sloppy in that. So we have to be kind of discerning if you have to deal or you're looking at another translation or somebody's giving you something on it. But for us, we try to keep it simple by saying this is our standard and it kind of keeps things plain and secure to where, again, here's my attitude as a pastor. I try to be gracious with people. Listen, I try to be gracious. I try to be understanding. But I have to tell myself, okay, that you read this over here. You read this over here, eh, that sounds about right. I don't know about that one. At the end of the day, what did God say? And I'm just telling you, at the end of the day, if I were to have to say it in English, there it is right in our lap. We may wonder, well, I mean, it's kind of like, okay, maybe you wonder if that's, that's good or that's good, but at the end of the day, I have to have an opinion in this or a final authority for English, and this is it. So um, so as I look at this path, as I look at this uh, issue. These are the things I'm reminded of by way of scripture. Seems like it was done in an excellent way. 
Great was the company of those that have published God's Word and even published this Word. I think of the fact that we have a goodly heritage, like the psalmist said. And then I think of Psalm 12, 6, and 7, that God has kept them. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. You know what's ironic about that verse? Some of the newer translations even change that. They say the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You will keep us, O Lord. You will preserve us forever. Why? You just changed subjects here. We're talking about the word. You just talked about you. God's going to keep us, but that's the... So they can change that even there. So um, I'm trying to help us be discerning the best I can. And, um, but the, you know, the biggest thing is about all this is, again, I've said it before, is that we have a good Bible. Let's read it. Let's believe it. Let's give it. Let's explain it. Let's teach it. Let's remember it and uh, you know, live it for God's glory. And uh, we'll stop right there and hopefully we'll continue on in this next week, what I'd like to do next week is I'd like to do why, we basically have told you why we should use this version, but I'm going to do what are misguided reasons for using the King James Version and primary reasons for using it. I just kind of want to sum it up. Sometimes we can be a little misguided in our reasoning, and I don't want to be that way.